we're going to have the Bible reading now, and I'll give you some time to find it. It's um, Acts 1, 1 to 11. Uh, in the Church Bibles, it's on page 882, or it'll be on the screen behind me. Acts 1, 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions, giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. No. You can have that. Good morning. Hey, it's good to be here again this morning. Uh, it's a great privilege of mine to announce uh, from a youth perspective, we've finished up for the term. And uh, across the term this uh, year, or this last term at youth, we uh, had a game that ran basically from day one through to the end, where we were in different tribes and you got points all year for different things. And the cockatiels, which uh, their colour was... Um, teal, which is why their names were cockatiels, and I was one of the leaders in that group, and I love birds, so we called it the cockatiels. We won. So uh, what that means is when the cross is back up and working, we're going to paint this town teal, and uh, we'll leave that for a little while, just so every youth can know the cockatiels were the best this term. So uh, that is just what's happening. We've finished up youth for the term though, so we'll be back uh, when school is back in a couple of weeks' time. Today we're going to be beginning a new series in Acts called Practicing the Power. Let's pray and then we'll get into this passage. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can join together this morning. Lord, we praise you that you have not saved us as individuals but that you saved us as a group of people. And so we pray now that however old we are, whatever week we've had, that as we come together this morning, that you would challenge us, that you would change us, and that you would empower us for all that you have called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So a few years ago, uh, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine about Christianity. He wasn't a Christian, and uh, it was just one of those conversations, right, where he asked lots of questions. I tried my best to answer him. It kind of went back and forth, and then as the conversation wrapped up, he had to go. And it finished with that kind of like, anyway, I hope you'll think about these things. You know, if you have any more questions, let me know, all that kind of friendly stuff. But as he was leaving, he kind of just left me with this. He says, anyway, Ben, why would I believe in something that began just as a way to make money? And then left. I was grateful that he dropped that on his way out and not at the start, right? His thinking was, why would I look into something that simply began as this kind of big pyramid scheme where the guy at the top makes all the money? Now, I don't know how you feel when you hear that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you agree with that. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're angered by that. But regardless of kind of what you feel towards that idea that the church began, this movement began just as a way to make money, the reality is when it comes to thinking like this, my friend is not alone. Right? Lots of people actually think this, and it's no wonder why. I mean, when we have a look in our culture, it's obvious why people think like this. Right? I mean, it's like, what, once every six months, maybe more frequently than that, then we get kind of an article in the news about the church and tax. Right? It comes up all the time. Then on top of that, we get like the project or a current affair running an article on or a story on you know, how much money the church makes and how much income a pastor gets. Then on top of that, on our Facebook feeds or whatever we kind of get our articles from, right? we see those articles from like that guy in America. Right? We've talked about him before, Jesse Duplantis, who asked his church for money for a fourth private jet. And so it's no wonder that people think the church began just as a way to make money, right? That there is someone sitting at the top of this who's kind of every, the money is just funneling up to the guy at the top. Now, as we gather together as a church this morning, there's a few questions we have about this. I mean, firstly, as someone who works for the church, where do I get a part of this money, <laughs> right? How do I get, no, I mean, that's not really my question. The question for us is genuinely though, right? If people are saying this, how do we respond to this? And more than that, how did the church begin, right? How did the church, how did this movement that we're a part of today, how did it start? How did it begin? I mean, what was going through the people's head? Why did this movement begin? Well, to answer that question, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the moment in history when this movement began to explode. We're not going to kind of just try and figure it out by looking around today. We're going to go to the moment in history and we're going to see why this thing began. And to do that, we're going to look in Acts chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles there, it's there in front of you. It'll be on the screen as well. And we're going to see two reasons why the church began this morning. We pick it up from Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus... I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Why did the church begin? We see right here in these three verses the first reason, and it's because of physical convictions that Jesus is alive. 
It's because people were deeply convicted by the physical reality that Jesus was alive. Now, we see that here in these first few verses, right? And so what we see as this, uh, these verses unfold is that some guy is writing to another person called Theophilus. Now, we see back in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4, you can see this if you want to kind of double check it, but in Luke chapter 1, 1 to 4, Luke is the guy who's writing to Theophilus, and he's writing to give him certainty about the things that he's heard. Right? He's writing to give him certainty about the things that he's heard. And to do that, Luke is going to eyewitnesses. Right? So if we've got this picture of Luke, okay, he's a doctor. And what he's doing, what Luke is doing is he's going around speaking to eyewitnesses. And then he's kind of collaborating that evidence and putting it in Luke and Acts. That's what we have in these books, Luke and then Acts. So, you know, he would hear things like the miracles, Right here, things like Jesus performing miracles. And so what Luke would do to give Theophilus certainty is he would go around and he would ask these witnesses, these eyewitnesses, and then he would kind of collaborate their information, put it together, and then that's what we've got in Luke, right? In Acts, he would see the Jesus teaching. And here, like, okay, Jesus is claiming to be God and claiming to be the Savior and claiming to know what this world is all about. And so Luke would go around and he'd speak to eyewitnesses. And he'd speak to multiple that saw this happen, and then he's drawing it together, collaborating it, and then giving it to us. Hear about the suffering, the death, the resurrection. That's what Luke is doing, to give Theophilus certainty about the things that he's heard. Okay, now, as we pick it up in Acts chapter 1, Luke says in verse 1 and 2, he says, all right, I've started talking about all that Jesus began to do, and then he kind of zooms in in verse 3, and he points to the resurrection. Okay, he, he kind of zooms into this and he wants Theophilus to know that he can have certainty that Jesus is alive. And that's a good thing, right? Like, it's good that someone is working hard to give people certainty, proof that Jesus is alive. If you can kind of picture being in Theophilus' shoes, I mean, you've got, you're hearing about some guy that's doing miracles, some guy that's died. You know, he, he got a spear in him on the cross just to make sure he was dead, wrapped in kilograms of linen and stuff like that, and then put in a tomb with a big stone in front of it and a centurion guarding it. And you're hearing that this guy is alive. You want proof about that, right? You want proof on that. And so what Luke does is he zooms in on that and he wants, Luke to, he wants Theophilus to know with certainty that Jesus came back from the dead. And he points to do two big things here. The first big thing about Jesus' resurrection is that he appeared to a bunch of different people. Okay, so uh, he appeared to them. We don't see, Luke doesn't record the numbers here. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul records like over 500 people saw Jesus. So what we see is the first big thing, Jesus appeared to a bunch of different people. Now this is big, right? This is big for a few different reasons. The first reason this is big is because this didn't just happen for one guy. Right? Like this movement didn't begin because one guy was stuck in a room and he had, you know, this great thought and wrote down this stuff and that's how it began. Right? That's not how it began. Like lots of people saw this happen. It wasn't just one guy. And, and since lots of people saw it happen, the next big thing is that it's not a dream. Okay? It's not a hallucination. It's not a vision. Right? This is not just one person's like, I woke up this morning, I had a dream, let me pump that stuff out. 
right? No, lots of people saw it. And dreams and visions and hallucinations only happened to one person, right? Now, you might dream in some ballpark to someone else, but all of our dreams are pretty individual, right? I mean, the other night I dreamt about fishing and then couldn't fish because someone threw mattresses on top of the fishing hole. Anyone else having that dream? Right? No one's having that dream. I'm disappointed in myself for having that dream. But dreams are individual, and hallucinations are individual, and visions are individual. And so what Luke is showing here is this is not a dream. This is not just some guy who had a vision in a room and then wrote out this stuff. Right? No, what he's doing, what Luke is showing Theophilus is that Jesus appeared to a bunch of different people. And so as Theophilus is reading this, Right? He can start to have certainty. He can start to know, okay, man, lots of people saw this. Right? Lots of people witnessed this. And if he wanted to, in this moment, what he could do is he could go and ask them about it. Right? I mean, he could go and speak to Peter and James and John and whoever else saw this stuff happen and he could ask about it. And so that's the first big thing. The first big thing is that Jesus appeared to a bunch of different people. The second big thing, though, is here in verse 3 as well, and it's that Jesus appeared over 40 days. Now, this too is big, because what this means is what happened with Jesus and him coming back from the dead wasn't this sneaky, you know, blink and you mi- you'll miss it type thing. You know, it wasn't like they saw Jesus walk past as they were in the store and there was someone they were pretty sure looked like Jesus, and they went out and tried to see him and then he wasn't there anymore and they're like, Jesus rose from the dead. That's not what happened, right? This is not your, you know, YouTube conspiracy documentary where it's like the only footage they have about the animal you've never heard of existing is this half-second dodgy video. It's blurry and all that stuff. Now, I don't know if you've ever got caught watching one of those. Um, to my shame, a few years ago, I watched a mermaid documentary um, trying to convince you that mermaids were real. Now, um, I'm not proud of this. It went for an hour. I watched half an hour of it. And they're trying to convince you that mermaids actually exist. And um, the way this happens is, and all of these, the same thing happens. Any, pick any animal, pick any conspiracy you know, in this kind of vein. It's like this dodgy half-second footage, blink and you'll miss it type thing. Right, so the first play they go through and you, you kind of see it, you know, suspense music over the top. You're like, okay, I can understand how someone would think that a mermaid existed. And then it slows down and it's literally just a picture of this. <laughs> a seal, right? There's a reason you haven't heard of mermaid documentaries. There is a reason that these only exist in the deep, dark spaces <laughs> on the internet. It's because mermaids don't exist. Now, uh, there's lots of documentaries like this online, but what happened with Jesus wasn't this, right? It's not this kind of blink and you'll miss it type thing, right? It's not like they saw some guy that kind of looked like Jesus, and so they're going, he's alive. No, he appeared over 40 days. Day after day after day, he appeared to eyewitnesses to prove that he was back from the dead. Right, over and over and over again. This was not blink and you'll miss it. This is like genuine, convincing proof. I mean, even Thomas, right? He's like, I don't believe it. And so Jesus says, okay, come and you know, see it day after day after day. Touch these holes in my hands. You know, he, he was there. He taught them. He was with them. And so what Luke wants to show us, 
right? And what's, what he wants to show Theophilus is that actually Jesus rising from the dead, this is not just some dream or hallucination or, you know, some guy's teaching in a quiet room that no one else has, you know, heard of this. This is genuine eyewitness accounts where we can have physical convictions that Jesus is alive. And so this is good for Theophilus, but it's also good for us, right? It's also good for us because we can have certainty about Jesus' resurrection. But as we look into this, we start to see, too, why the church began, right? We start to see the first reason in these verses why the church began, and the first reason is because of physical convictions that Jesus is alive, right? That's why the church began, because Jesus is alive, because people had genuine convictions that Jesus is alive, right? So if we think about this, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, there's no church, right? There's no movement. We don't exist, right, if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead. Because if he doesn't rise from the dead, Jesus is just like every other leader who claimed to know stuff about God and then died, right? There's no church, There's no hope for us. There's no meaning for us to meet. There's no looking forward to the future. If Jesus stays dead, the church is dead. But if Jesus rises from the dead, all of a sudden everything changes because in this moment of him rising from the dead, he now sets apart, stands apart from every other leader in history. Right? Like all of a sudden his claims about knowing about God and life, and everything to do with this world are validated by the fact that he came back from the dead, that Jesus rose again, right? Muhammad didn't rise again. Buddha didn't rise again. There's no guru that rose again. Joseph Smith didn't rise again. There is no leader that rose again except for Jesus. He conquered death, And there are physical, there is proof about this. We can have convictions about this physical reality that Jesus came back from the dead. And so it validates all the things that he taught. Validates his claims to be God. Validates his claims to be the only way to eternal life. And so as we look into this, we see this first reason why the church began. It's because of physical convictions. It's because the physical reality that Jesus came back from the dead that he did something no one else could do, that he rose from the dead and that he appeared to a bunch of different people day after day after day for 40 days. That's the first reason the church began. But we said there were two at the start. And the second reason is what we see from verse 4 and 5. This is what he says. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the first reason is physical convictions that Jesus is alive. The second reason the church began is because of spiritual power. Spiritual power, where God himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabled and began this movement. Now, I love this because if we think about it today, I don't know if you've kind of been in conversations like this, but more and more we have people who are either purely physical or purely spiritual, right? So we've got people who think, right, spiritual is dead and everything is physical, 
and you can justify everything from logic and what's going on in front of us. Everything is physical. There is no spiritual. Right? Then on the other hand, we've got people today, more and more actually, despite the camp in the physical, more and more people today who are kind of over-spiritualizing everything where everything is spiritual. Right? Like where my actions are determined by the month that I was born in. Or my actions were determined by the rocks that I was holding in my pockets or next to my bed. And so there's people that are over-spiritualizing, right? So we've got people who say the, the spiritual's dead and physical is everything. And then we've got people who say the physical's dead and the spiritual's everything. Now, what I love about what Jesus is doing here is to the physical, he physically rose again, right? Like he's not just, he wasn't just a spirit, he appeared, I mean, he was eating with them. He physically rose from the dead. They had physical convictions. He came back to life. But at the same time, there's also a spiritual power involved here. God himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is working in this movement. Now, the question for us is, what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Right? That's really the question in this moment. When Jesus says, John baptized with water, I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, the question for us is, what does this actually mean? Well, as we move through the Bible, what we see is that this means three practical things. Okay, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is when God gives himself in the Holy Spirit, and this means three practical things. The first thing is conversion. When God gives himself by the Holy Spirit, that is when people can see things they previously couldn't see. So if you want to look up more about this, we see this in John 3, where Jesus says it's only the Spirit that gives new life. And so what we see is that the Holy Spirit is the one who allows conversion to happen. He is the one who allows people to see what previously they couldn't see. He is the one that works in people to help them see that Jesus is glorious, that he is his death and resurrection, that there is much to be had in that. It's what happens when people see what previously they couldn't see. But that, that's the first thing. The second thing the baptism of the Spirit means, when God gives himself to the, uh, in the Spirit, is it results in spiritual gifts. Okay, so when the Spirit comes, He doesn't just help us see something previously we couldn't see. He gives us things for the, beneficial, uh, the benefit of the church to encourage one another and point each other to Jesus. So we see this in various places, but in 1 Corinthians 12 is the main place that we see this. Where we see, He says, right, there are many gifts, but one Spirit. Okay, one spirit. Now, the question is, what are those gifts? What do the gifts look like? Well, he goes on to talk about this, right? And he says, to some, those gifts, if we go on to that next slide, Billy, to some, will be given, uh, they'll be given the gift of speaking the message of wisdom. To others, they'll be given the gift of speaking the message of knowledge. To others, they will have a supernatural faith. To others, they'll have the gift of healing. To others, they will have miraculous powers. To others, prophecy. To others, the uh, distinguishing between spirits. To others, tongues. To others, the interpretation of the tongues. And the reality is, right, in this moment, they're given for the edification, the building up of God's church. Okay, and, and these are different according to what God decides, which is what God uh, sees the church needs. Right, so he gives different people different gifts for the building up of his church. 
Okay, so the first thing we see, it's conversion. It's the ability to see what previously we couldn't see. The second thing is spiritual gifts. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to do things where we can use those gifts for the building up of the church. But there's one final thing, a third thing. And it's this, the third practical thing that the Holy Spirit gives us is this kind of walking with us, this enablement, this empowerment to do the things that God calls us to do, right? So, so the Holy Spirit does not just convert and then give gifts and then leave, right? That's not how he works. So uh, it, he, the Holy Spirit's not like a postman, okay? So this week uh, in the mail, we got delivered to our house something we bought online. Now, it was toilet paper, Okay, we got that delivered. Now, I love buying stuff online because even when it's toilet paper, you get home from work and you still feel like it's Christmas, right? It's awesome, right? You, you just, it's like, yes, we've got toilet paper, right? Once we were lost, now we're found <laughs> in desperate... No, it wasn't quite that... I mean, it got pretty bad, but um, not that bad. Now, <laughs> the, we got this gift at the front door. Okay, now the way that packages like this work, you know, we just say, we don't need to sign anything, just drop it at the front door, right? My thinking is if someone needs toilet paper more than I do, they can have it. And so um, we just said, leave it at the front door. Now you get home and you just find this gift at the front door. Now in my head in that moment, I don't think about what the postman was doing, right? The guy that delivered that or the, the girl that delivered that doesn't even come into my mind. Right? I mean, we don't think about the postman, we just think about what we have. Right? In fact, most of the time, we're kind of not even aware that the postman exists. Right? Not even aware that kind of who it is or what they do or what they're interested in or you know, kind of you know, what they get up to. We just know they give us stuff and then they leave. Right? Now, sometimes I think we fall into this trap of thinking the Holy Spirit's like that. Right, where he comes, he gives stuff, but then outside of that, right, outside of conversion and the gifts that he gives to encourage the church, outside of that, right, I don't know, I mean, we could take him or leave him. Right? I mean, we, we kind of actually sometimes forget about him, right, to the point where a guy a few years ago called Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God talking about how in kind of practice of traditions like ours, we forget the Holy Spirit because we're kind of aware of what he gives, aware of the gifts, aware of our need to see Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. But outside of that, right, we could take him or leave him. The, the problem is, though, when we treat the Holy Spirit like that, we lose something and that's not how he works. The Holy Spirit is not just the guy that comes and drops stuff off and leaves. He works in us and through us. He empowers us and enables us. He fills us and fuels us to do the things that God calls us to do. Without the Holy Spirit, we are powerless. Without the active presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, we have nothing. Right? We, we, can't, we are unable in and of ourselves. And so what we see then throughout Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is given for this enablement. 
right? So what we see then is uh, as we gather together, as we decide to say no to sin and live in step with the Spirit, in that moment, the Spirit fills us and enables us to keep doing that. As we meet together, right, we're told that when more than one or two are gathered together, that God is there. In that moment, when we meet together, the Holy Spirit fills us and fuels us to keep doing what God has called us to do. Um, Even in Ephesians 5, which we see on the screen, Um, In Ephesians 5, it says, don't get drunk on wine, right? Don't be filled with wine or whatever your alcohol of choice is. Be filled with, instead, the Holy Spirit, right? And how does that happen? Well, it happens when we sing together. It happens when we encourage one another. And so as we gather together, as we meet together as a church, the Holy Spirit is at work here. And as we sing, as we encourage one another, as we point each other to Christ, the Holy Spirit works in us and through us and He empowers us and fills us and fuels us to do the things that God has called us to do. Let's see, He's not the postman that just comes, does His thing and leaves. He is presently at work in us and through us, and we need His work in us and through us. And so this is what the baptism of the Spirit is. First, it's conversion. Second, it's spiritual gifts. Third, it's spiritual power as He works in His church. Okay, now as we kind of take a step in or back out of that, back into the passage, what we start to see then is the second reason the church began. Right? The first one was physical convictions. Jesus is alive. The second one is spiritual power. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, working in this movement to enable people to see Christ, to enable the church to encourage each other and to empower them to keep doing the things that God has called them to do. Now, the question is then, what does this look like? Right? What does this look like for the church to have physical convictions and spiritual power? Well, this is what we see from verse 6. Onwards, pretty much to the rest of Acts, but we'll pull it up. We'll stop at verse 11. What does this look like? Well, this is what happens. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently into the sky as he was going. And suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of, uh, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, what does this look like for this movement to begin with physical conviction and spiritual power? Or Jesus tells them this thing is going to go to the ends of the earth. Now, just feel for a moment the weightiness of what the disciples are going through. Right? Like they're standing around in a circle. Well, I don't know if they're standing. They're standing, I don't know, my picture is kind of in a field. Right? And they say to Jesus, are you going to restore the kingdom? Right? Now, in their head, their mind is, are you going to defeat Rome and Israel is going to be great again? Right? That's what they're thinking. It's not ultimately not a great question to ask. Jesus replies, that's not going to happen. Instead, you're going to take this to the ends of the earth Right? And then Jesus leaves. 
Now, as Jesus is leaving, right? So we're, we're picturing this moment here. In this field, Jesus is leaving through a cloud. That's cool. And then the cloud comes over, opens up, and Jesus is gone. Then the angel says to them, what are you looking at? Now, just think about that. They're looking at a guy leaving through the sky, right? Like, I'm watching that too. That's what I'm looking at. This doesn't happen every day. I mean, I've only heard about these things on YouTube conspiracy theories. I've never seen this in the flesh. Right? So I'm looking at Jesus go through the clouds. But the angel's point in this moment is not like, what are you looking at? It's like, now's not the time to be looking into the sky. Now's the time to go. It's a lot to take in as, as a disciple, right? There's, I mean, there's a lot to kind of soak in there. I mean, this guy was dead. And then he's been hanging out with you for 40 days. And then he's gone. And then you just see some angels. And, and the message is, you're going to take this thing to the ends of the earth. Right now, as, I, as Jesus says that to me, in that moment, right, you're going to take this to the ends of the earth. I'm looking around that group of people and I'm going, surely you got the wrong guy. Right? Surely you got the wrong group of people. Because as we look at the disciples, I mean, these people are pretty ordinary. Right? I mean, we've got James and John who are standing there. They asked twice when Jesus was alive if they could be first in the kingdom of God. They asked twice, can we sit next to the Father on the right and on the left? Right? Then we've got Peter, 43 days earlier, denied Jesus three times. Then we've got Thomas. He's standing there and he literally saw Jesus and still said, I'm not going to believe this until you know, I touch those holes in his hands and his feet. Right? Like, this is a pretty ordinary group of people here. We've got fishermen who can't catch fish. We've got tradies. We've got tax frauds, a, a, a tax collectors. and tax, I mean, they were rorting the system here. And so as Jesus says to this ordinary group of people, you're going to take this movement to the ends of the earth. I'm thinking you got the wrong group of people, right? Like surely he could have gathered a more competent group of people there. Surely he could have picked someone else to take this movement to the ends of the earth. I mean, how could Jesus ask this ordinary group of people to do this thing? But see, as we look closer, we recognize Jesus isn't asking them by their own power. He's not asking them by their own strength. No, he says, you will receive power to do this. You will receive power to take this message, to be my witnesses of Jesus' resurrection to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This ordinary people isn't doing this on their own strength. They've been given a power, the power of God, the power that raised Christ from the dead. They've been given this power to go and do this mission. And so what we see from this point in Acts is beautiful. These ordinary men and women go in power. And what we see in Acts chapter 2, the guy that denied Jesus three times 43 days earlier, now preaches and thousands of people are saved. Why? Because God was working by his power in this moment, working through ordinary people like Peter. And then we keep seeing this same thing over and over again in the book of Acts. We see this generation after generation after generation, time after time after time, age after age, to the point where this movement continued from this little group of people looking into the sky, this ordinary group of men and women, to the point where we stand now in Australia 
in 2018, we are, I mean, right now, if you think about it, from the minds of someone in Jerusalem, we are the ends of the earth, and yet we sit here in this room with the physical convictions of Jesus' resurrection and the spiritual power that God has raised Christ from the dead and that God has given us his Holy Spirit. And we sit a part of a movement that exploded throughout history. We sit here a part of something bigger than just what's happening here in this room. We sit a part of a global movement, a global church, not that didn't begin because someone was at the top trying to make money, right? Like there's no one at the top trying to, you know, make some money. Luke wasn't writing for that reason. We see that this began because of physical convictions and spiritual power. And so what that means for us then today is that we sit a part of a global church with a global mission to witness to the ends of the earth. And if we think about that just for a moment, what that means then is that God is calling us to witness to the ends of the earth. God is calling us to witness here in Brisbane and to the ends of the earth. God is calling you to this. God is calling you to witness in your homes and in your families and in your schools and in your workplaces and in your uh, nation right, in your suburb, in your state, in your nation to witness about the things that you know. And so the question then is, right, like what thoughts run through your head in that moment, right? I mean, how do you feel recognizing that God in this moment is calling you to witness to the ends of the earth? Because for me, when I hear this, when I see that this is my mission, I feel like Jesus has got the wrong guy, I feel ordinary. I have crazy anxieties. I don't have all the answers. I stumble across my words. And time and time again in conversations, I get to the end of it and get home and think, man, I could have done that better. I get tired and sick. I'm weak and broken and sinful. Surely Jesus has the wrong guy here. Maybe you feel that way as well. And when, when you hear the message that it's your, that God's call on your life is to witness to the ends of the earth, surely maybe you feel that way as well. This is too big. You've picked the wrong person here. But see, if we feel that way, we have to come back to this verse here and see that Jesus isn't calling us by our own strength and our own power. He's saying, you have been given this task and you have been given a power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of him who raised Christ from the dead. You have God with you. You are not alone in this task, right? It is not your job to change hearts. The Holy Spirit does that, right? God himself does that through you and in you. So as we go, despite our anxieties and our worries and our fears and our stumblings and our weaknesses and our sin, God says, here, go, keep going, not on your own strength or your own power, but because you've been given a power, the power of God himself. This is why the church began, because of physical convictions of Jesus' resurrection and spiritual power. This is why the church continues, and this is why the church will continue, because we have confidence of Jesus' resurrection and confidence that God is working through weak people like us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you haven't called us in our own strength and in our own power 
to do something that we are not capable of doing. But God, instead, you have given us your power. You have given us your strength. You have given us yourself in the Holy Spirit. And so, God, we pray that we would be convicted by Jesus' resurrection and that we would be empowered by the fact that the Holy Spirit is given to us and that he's working in us and through us, filling us and fueling us for all that you've called us to do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.